Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the leader of the B.C. Conservative Party, John Rustad, MLA for Nechaco Lakes, uh, moving up in the opinion polls here. we got an election coming in the fall. John, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me in, yes. Okay, so let's start with the situation in uh, Surrey with the overcrowded schools, because I took uh, great interest there in your announcement there the other day. How, how many portables we got there now? You're, you you got a plan here to get rid of these portables, right? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's somewhere between 20 and 30% of the students in Surrey that are in portables at this yeah. point. And so it's an awful lot of portables. I, I actually don't even have a current count uh, because it seems to be they're adding them all the time with the growth that Surrey is seeing. Yeah, is it bad for kids to be in a portable? I remember when I was a kid, I went, I did a couple of years in a portable. and I, I remember it was cold in the winter. That's the main thing I remember. It wasn't that bad. Well, I mean, I like, like kids, kids adapt, right, in, in yeah. terms of it. But, uh, you know, when you're looking at this, Portables is a short-term solution for, you know, a growth problem or while you're building a new school. I can understand that. But when portables become the long-term solution, and that is the educational experience from a child, yeah. something has gone wrong with our with the system. And now the, you know, the Surrey School Board is talking about wanting to go put the kids on shift. Yes, what so do you think of that? In the morning. Well, when I, was a, uh, when I was a student, uh, you know, growing up in Prince George, there was a construction of another school. So actually for one of the years, I had to be on shift. And I was on the early shift, you know, seven in the morning you start. And then, mm. you know, the, the late shift was finishing, I think, seven o'clock at night or something like that. And, and I got to tell you, it sucked, right? Mm. I mean, as a student, it sucked, right? And, yeah. and I know as parents, um, you know, they had to figure out now the kids are, are around, you know, at different times of the day when they're not around and they got to make, make arrangements. It's not the best scenario. Well, maybe but, the portables are better. Well, I actually heard the teachers' union say they don't like these shift, uh, the kids going to school and shift either. And they say, we just get more portables going instead. <laughs> well, <laughs> if, if the teachers' unions want to be advocating for more portables, I guess that's up to them. But, well, they're just I, saying it's a better option than the, uh, than the I mean, shifts. I mean, we do, we need to build out additional school capacity in Surrey, but that's yeah. going to take years. And we don't want students to have to spend their entire educational, um, you know, years in portables. And so there's a solution that we can look at doing which is if, if we have a small increase in the number of students per class but maintain the teacher-per-student ratio, um, I think you know we can eliminate a significant number, if not all, of the portables in places like Surrey. So you're talking about you know, a classroom going from maybe 20 to 24 students or maybe 25 to 29 students, something like that, to get rid of a significant number of the portables. So, so you'd still be under the, the mandated class size limits then is that well, what you're saying or i'm not sure with that but it's it's not the, the mandate is not class sizes the mandate is students per teacher ratios and so what we would do is we'd maintain those student by teacher ratios by having the teachers that are currently teaching in the portables coming back into the school and being additional teachers in the classroom so you might have classrooms with multiple teachers or teachers that may go between two or three different classrooms yeah i'm trying to figure out how i would feel about that as a parent like if the choice is my kid is either going to be in a portable or is going to be in a larger class size with more kids, I think I might lean to the portable. Well, that w- may- wouldn't you? Because you'd want you'd want smaller class sizes are better. Well, that's an interesting question uh, in terms of smaller class size. Certainly, smaller class sizes are easier for teachers to be able to manage, and we have lots of other issues that are going on in classrooms. 
But when you look at other places around the world that have better educational outcomes than we have in British Columbia, and our educational outcomes are actually in decline, um, they have larger a number, a larger number of students per class. Okay, let me play a clip here. For the, this got a big rise out of the teachers' union. Okay, as as you know, so let's listen to Lizanne Foster here, uh, representative of the Surrey Teachers Association, You're literally laughing at your idea here, John. Let's have a listen. Look at your thoughts. <laughs> I'm, I I just I I literally laughed when I heard about the extra class sizes. It sounds like he has no idea about what actually happens in classrooms. What do you say to her? Well, you know, the job of the, of the leader of the, of the teachers' union is, of course, to protect the teachers. But let, let's cut the crap. I mean, I have been uh, a school trustee in the past. I visited schools throughout the years um, in my riding and, and schools in other ridings. I haven't visited schools in Surrey, but, you know, the, the reality is this. Do you want a student in a portable for the, for the next 12 years Using a, using a washroom that's outdoors in a, in a portable, or do you want to have an educational experience within the school? Now, we need to build out additional capacity. There's no question, and there needs to be investment, but that's going to take a number of years to do. So rather than have you know a, a generation or two relegated to portables or shifts, which is what the school district is still going to do, and let's get them into the classroom. Let me ask you about another hot-button issue here that kind of blew up in the legislature this week, and that is the calls for unvaccinated health care workers to be rehired in our hospitals and other health care facilities. British Columbia, we still have this mandate now to work in the health care system. You must be vaccinated for COVID-19. Are we the only province left in Canada now that still has this mandate? I think we're actually the only jurisdiction left in the world that no, has this mandate. No, really? Yeah. It's, in the it's, world? That's quite... They, everywhere else has recognized they have a health care crisis. They need their health care professionals working. For some reason, British Columbia has decided, and, and uh, um, you know, Adrian Dix and the, and the NDP have decided that if you're not willing to get a vaccine, then you shouldn't be working in health care. And so yeah. they've made it... Well, he says to protect patients. Okay, so what science is, is, is Adrian Dix following when every other jurisdiction in the world has hired back these people? Yeah. It makes no sense. And I'll just give you an example. We have a nurse in McKenzie. She took one, one shot of the vaccine. She had a serious allergic reaction. Her doctor said, do not take another one. She was fired. Mm. She lost her job. And she's still in McKenzie, and she wants to work, and she can't go back to work. What kind of impact has this had in the healthcare system? We're talking about a small, a small percentage of people here. Well, actually, right. the, the interesting thing is it's not just a small percentage, but it is, it's actually, you know, these are the frontline healthcare workers that have been impacted. So they're not the managers and the other components that are in there. And so the estimates I've heard is somewhere between 2,500 have been fired, but yeah. the number of people that took early retirement or left for other jurisdictions because they didn't like the mandate, it's somewhere between seven and 10,000 people. That's a big number. That's doctors, a lot of nurses. Well, wait, hang, 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 on a, hang on a second, because the, the 2,500 number, I think, is the widely reported number. That's the number that Which is like fired. less than, what, it was like 1% of the workforce or something, isn't it? Well, about remember, about 40% of the nurses, for example, are take administration roles. And so when you look at how many that is in terms of frontline workers, it's actually a much larger percentage. And this is why when you look at, you know, many, um, on many hospital forms, they're working with minimal staffing because they don't have the additional people. Okay, so if there are a, a, another large group of of uh, healthcare workers who, like you said, took early retirement or whatever, 
or left. Instead of being or left, just decided to get out of the profession, so they weren't technically fired. So you're saying there's a large pool of workers there potentially could come back into the system at a time when we got a shortage well, in healthcare. The, yeah. Yes, that is exactly right. We have this pool that would be available. The problem we have in our healthcare system, of course, is morale is very low for doctors and nurses. Right? I mean, they're they're overworked, they're stressed, they really care about their patients. I had a nurse uh, up in Prince George, or I'm sorry, in um, in Vanderhoof, that came and talked to me just uh, just last week, and. She literally, she's going to people that need service and, and saying, I'm sorry, we can't provide it. She's in tears. She, she cares so much about her patients, but there just isn't the people to go around. We need to have these people back in our system and more. How would their morale be impacted if they were told, now you have to work with colleagues who are not vaccinated? I haven't heard from very many healthcare workers at all that have, had, have, have expressed that concern, especially so, when you look at the issue of uh, you know the vaccine you know, if you took the initial two series, it's virtually gone out of your body. Um, there's no difference between an unvaccinated and unvaccinated person at this point if, if that's all you took was the first two series. And when you look at, the, for example, the uptake on the boosters, it's very, very low, especially among yeah. healthcare workers. Okay, um, it, the politics on this is, is interesting and getting intricate, too, because you've got the BC United Party, your former party, right, the former BC Liberal Party, they are also calling for these unvaccinated healthcare workers to be rehired. Let's play a clip here of Kevin Falcon, the leader of the opposition here, leader of BC United. And it's interesting how he frames this because he makes it very clear. I think this is a direct, a direct shot at you here uh, when he says this. Listen carefully what he says here, Kevin Falcon. I was the first leader and BC United was the first party to call for the return of thousands of unvaccinated healthcare workers. Will the Premier finally rehire the health care workers that they fired. And then the, the health minister said, no, they will not rehire the, these workers. But he, he, made, he made a very clear distinction there. I was the first leader who called for this. I, we were the first political party who called for this. Obviously trying to say, well, we're ahead of this than, uh, than you guys in the B.C. Conservative. They're, cle- they're clearly worried about you. What do you think about that? Well, there's no question they're worried about us. I mean, yeah. they're, they're in a distant third right now in the, in the polling in, in the province. But... You know, let's let's look at what's at what is right. I mean, sure, they sent a letter out in June or whatever it was of 2022. One of the first questions I asked in the legislature uh, as an independent was hiring back healthcare workers. We've been working with healthcare workers across the province. We had a 17,500 person signature come in around this. We've had you know over 5,000 cards from doctors and nurses and others coming in around this that that have come and worked with us. So it's a big issue, and I'm I'm glad they're calling for it as well because, quite frankly, it needs to happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is just okay. one of those political issues. Hey, my guest is John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of BC, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Billy in Surrey. Hi, Billy, go ahead. Oh, hi, Billy. Uh, I uh, just wanted to say that I'm uh, RN with Razor Health, and I had to get vaccinated to keep my job to pay my bills. Um, I was against the vaccination because I felt I didn't, I didn't want it done and I didn't want to inject something into me that I felt I had a right to say no to. But unfortunately, I went along with it to keep my job. Now, if I had to work with someone that was not vaccinated, truthfully, I don't think it makes a difference if they're vaccinated or not, but it would, it would, be, would hurt the morale more being that I had to do it to keep my job and now I could have just stood my ground and, and come back to work. How do your colleagues feel about it? Like, do you guys do you guys ever talk talk about this issue at work? Oh yeah, for sure. Like everyone that I know, uh, majority of the people that got vaccinated, it was because 
they wanted to keep their job. It wasn't because they wanted it. It was to keep their job, to get food on the table. Well, I, I really, uh, I, sincere, I sincerely doubt that, that most people just wanted to keep their jobs. I mean, if you take a look at the vaccine rate in the, in the overall general population, it's a huge percentage. Like, people wanted to take the vaccine. But, I'm, but, I, but, but listen, man, this is, this, the thing I want to hear from you, though, is what do your colleagues say? Like, do most of your colleagues say, let them come back to work now? Uh, they, they're okay with it, yeah. They're, they're wanting okay. any kind of help we can get. Okay, Billy, thank you for calling in. Your thoughts, John. And, Billy, thank you. And that's what I'm hearing a lot from healthcare workers, whether it's doctors or nurses, is um, they're stressed. They need the additional people. They want help. And they they want, need help. They want help. They want to be yeah. able to provide the best service they can, and they know that, you know, the system is, is in crisis. It's broken. Yeah. Carrie in Surrey. Hi, Carrie. Go ahead. Yes, um, I'd kind of like to give an opposing view on this. Um, sure. My son is immune, immunocompromised. He has severe health issues. And in 2019, he contracted influenza B, which uh, landed him on ECMO, which is life support. So someone not being vaccinated, a medical professional not being vaccinated, could literally kill him. And as many thousands, I mean, the whole point of people getting vaccinated is that we're supposed to all get vaccinated to protect our most vulnerable who can't get vaccinated. That is, And yet you're advocating for these people who quite simply would rather get advice from Joe Rogan than Bonnie Henry on vaccines. Because your point about someone um, having a medical issue regarding vaccines vaccines, they're exempt. That that whole story is a fabrication. Um, and as all, also as far as Surrey schools as well, you're you mean you mean for- you mean you mean hang on, let me just ask something, Carrie. So you're you're saying like if a healthcare worker has a medical exemption, they can still keep their job without being vaccinated? Is that Yeah, that's that my understanding because that's that the whole point. That's okay, look- immunity. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie, for the call. What do you say to her? So the first thing is um, the vaccine has already been proven that it does not prevent you from getting it and it does not prevent you from transmitting it. And so reduces the chances of it. And that's even questionable in terms of what the odds are there uh, based on the science. But there is no exemptions, no exceptions. That's what Bonnie Henry had said with regards to uh, for healthcare uh, workers, healthcare workers or for anyone. So even if a if a nurse is told by a doctor like this, the like the The example you cited, yes. The, the nurse in McKenzie, she lost her job because she refused to get the second shot because the doctor told her. doctors. To. Okay, Jim in Surrey. Hey, Jim, go ahead. Good morning. Used, used to be one day to see my doctor. Now it's two weeks to see my doctor. This vaccine has mandate has got to come off. Nowhere in the world are they doing this anymore. We've been on a cruise recently, and we've been to Mexico. You don't even know who's vaccinated and who isn't. People are going to get it. That's the way it is. Mike, okay. yourself, you just had it not too long ago. You've been vaccinated three, four times, I'm sure. It yes, doesn't matter anymore. It's going to travel through the system. It's time to put people back to work. It's the only okay, way Jim, to thank- get through it. Thanks for the call. Well, you know, the interesting thing I think people got to keep in mind here is every other province is dropped. <laughs> Has right. dropped this mandate. Every other province, every other every place other in the world province has dropped these mandates. Yeah. And many places they're saying it's unsafe for kids. I mean, there's there's lots of different approaches around the world. And that's why I say so exactly what science is being followed.
Okay, let's talk about chronic repeat offenders, especially around shoplifting, break-ins at small businesses. We've talked a lot about this on the show. I have interviewed a ton of small business owners who have seen their places broken into over and over again. they got shoplifters in the store every single day. This one, though, maybe takes the cake here. This is the store chain that has now been broken into an even two dozen times 24 break-ins here. We've got Jeremy Daniels standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report. This is from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. Cleaning up the mess thieves leave behind has become part of the job here. Around and around we go. In the early hours Sunday morning, someone threw two rocks through the window of the Gold Silver Guys Nanaimo location, accessing the showcase, stealing at least 20 pocket watches, some more than 100 years old. We probably lost another three or $4,000 on this one. Discuss now with my guest, Jeremy Daniels. He's the manager of Gold Silver Guy in Nanaimo. You heard his voice there in this report, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Jeremy, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thanks for the invite. Yeah, you're welcome. Can you tell me about your business there? What do you sell at like Gold Silver there? I, I, can, I can guess what you sell there, but you, you tell do, me. Well, we do a variety of things because uh, the market's always changing. We've often been in collectibles. We've dealt in stamps. We still do, but that's now a minor part of the business. Once upon a time, it would have been the whole business. But these days, mm. you don't get young kids back into collecting because they got computers and video games. So yeah. we deal in collectible coins, banknotes, uh, old watches. We do jewelry. We buy and sell gold and silver in bullion form for investment purposes. We also buy old scrap jewelry off of people. So we do a variety of different things here. And I know, and I know you've had a lot of success, too. How many stores you got? We've got three of the Gold Silver Guy locations, but uh, as of late, we've been branching out because we found that people are more into the do-it-yourself these days. So we've also branched out into everything from yarn to beads, and we even run a chocolate shop in the Qualcomm Beach area. Okay, very interesting. Congrats on your success there. Now let's let's talk what happened here with this latest break-in. <laughs> There's a lot of break-ins here at your your stores here. Tell me what happened in this latest one. Well, I got the alert Sunday morning about 4, 4 a.m., so I rolled out, pants on, shoes on, out the door. Here within 10 minutes, the RCMP were on site. There's a nice big hole in my window, but the perpetrator was off site by that point. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So what did they? So they smashed. There was a smash and grab job, right? They smashed the window. Yeah. Well, they attempted to get through the back door first, but it is heavily secured, and they didn't have a chance to come through from that area. So then they came to the front and put two rocks through the window, busted mm-hmm. out the back of the showcase, and managed to sweep a bunch of pocket watches out. And the RCMP, according to the interview that was posted there with uh, on the news, there said that we need to target harden our environment rather than there need to be some responsibility on the end of the people actually doing the stealing. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll actually play a clip here of the RCMP constable here on that on that precise point in just a second here. Speaking of Jeremy Daniels, gold silver guy store in Nanaimo, his businesses have been broken into 24 times here over over the years. Um, why? Like one of the things I was wondering about when I was watching this was, what, do you not have bars on your windows? If oh, you've been we broken do have into bars. So yeah. Yep, there's bars on the windows, but the showcases were too close to the windows, so I guess we didn't plan well enough for that side of things. But they managed to break through the glass, bust out the back of the showcase. With the bars in place, they couldn't get into the business, but they could still do damage. Okay, so they were able to grab some stuff in the window, in the showcase in the window. Exactly. And, yeah. And showcases in the windows are important for businesses because it allows people to see before entering the store what kind of store they're entering. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so what did they get away with there? We heard in that, that report there it was watches, right? Yeah, primarily old pocket watches. Most of them would be around 100 years old or even a little bit older. Uh, it took us years to accumulate that inventory. It's not something you just pick up off the street on a daily basis. It's people that have them in their family, and the time comes, and then they want to they want to liquidate them. So yeah. it take, took us, you know, it could be 10 years, some of those watches that we've had for. Okay, you got any video surveillance there? Yep, we do have video surveillance. It was provided to the news stations as well as the RCMP. Yeah, and did you get a good good picture of the guy? We got a picture of the guy, but of course anybody with half a brain is hooded up, balaclava, and gloves on. So it's yeah. not going to be something that's identifiable. Right. Tell me about some of these other break-ins here. Man, that's a lot of break-ins over the years here. Have you had any repeat offenders, like same persons, same people breaking in? Uh, in fact, we have. So in mm. the Qualcomm area, we had a store, this is a few years back, but we had the same individual break into the store two times in a row. Uh, he was caught the second time, and he was only uh, served with a sentence to to go to sweat lodge. So even after breaking in twice, it still wasn't an indication that somebody needed a greater punishment. Okay, and Nanaimo, your, your, this store is based in Nanaimo, and we've talked a lot about the situation in Nanaimo. It sounds like there's a lot of problems there. Like, what? How would you describe the situation in Nanaimo, and how has it changed over the recent times? Well, I've lived in Nanaimo pretty much my entire life. I was born in Port Hardy, but my family moved here when I was about five years old, so I've been here for 35 years. Uh, growing up in town, it was a relatively safe town. I mean, at 12 years old, I could hang around downtown because that's where my dad had his business at the time. So it's degraded to the point now that as a grown adult, I won't go into the downtown area after dark. And hell, I'm, half the time I don't want to go down there in the daylight because they've had to board up or gate up all of the green spaces in the area to keep tent cities off of them. So if you go through downtown Nanaimo now, you can't walk on the promenades. You have to just walk on the sidewalks because there's gates and, and fences up everywhere. So everything has degraded and it's gotten worse over the last four or five years here with the rise of Tent City, because all of a sudden a Tent City springs up somewhere, a news program goes on and does a story on it, and then people from other areas realize that, hey, there's a Tent City and they haven't taken it down there. So we end up with an influx of people. Yeah, what, what's driving it? Is it drug, drug abuse, drug addiction? Drug abuse is definitely going to be a big factor of it, because if you're on yeah. the street, do you really want to be sober? Yeah, what about mental illness? Do you see people on the street who are obviously like mentally ill? Oh, absolutely. When they shut down yeah. the institution years ago, they took the people that couldn't survive on the streets and pushed them out onto the streets. So what's more humanitarian, a safe place to sleep or being out on the streets mm. in the wintertime especially? Yeah. Speaking of Jeremy Daniels, his stores have been broken into 24 times over, over the many years here. Uh, let's, speak, let's listen to another store owner in Nanaimo, Jeremy. And this is Joan Christensen. She owns a clothing store in Nanaimo. Her place has been uh, targeted as well. We'll also hear from a community safety advocate here, Kevin Shaw. This is from Global News. Let's listen. It's concerning because the general public doesn't feel safe anymore in their own city. This has got to end. The government has to wake up. What in the heck does it take? Okay, so you heard her describe, yeah, uh, she made a similar point than you just, that you just did, saying that people don't feel safe on the streets of Nanaimo now. And then you heard this community activist leader saying, look, calling on government to wake up and take action. We did have, uh, you know, I remember Premier David Eby with last year was in your town for a big announcement that they were, they were going to put more resources into the criminal justice system there. I mean, what are you hearing? What, what do you think needs to be done? 
Well, what's remarkable is you take, uh, for instance, California down in the States. They've got the highest rate of money going into the homeless problem, but they have no effect on it. So is money ultimately a solution, or do we need better solutions, is the question that I would raise. Because you can look at examples. I'll bring up California again here. Just recently, when they had the Chinese president visit, they were able to clean up the homeless problem so it wasn't visible, and they did it instantly. But they weren't able to do anything about it before. So i got to wonder how much of the issues that we're facing are corrupt systems that are designed to continue themselves. Because if you look at the examples, people make a lot of money making a living off of dealing with these problems. If the problems go away, those jobs go away. Huh, okay, so you're saying that, what, there's, there's no motivation to actually fix this then? I mean, it I seems to me like, you know... I don't know if it's motivation right. to fix these things, but I think systems become corrupt over time. Because people have these jobs, like for instance, I keep bringing up the states, but it's where we got lots of statistics, is that any time that there's a push to decriminalize something like marijuana, it's the prison guard system, the prison guard unions that fight hardest against it. Because if you've got less people in prison, you've got less need to employ people in the prison systems. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, Jeremy, for your thoughts, and you touch briefly on this. This is a spokesperson for the Nanaimo RCMP, Constable Gary O'Brien, talking about the break-ins in, in town. Let's listen. You have to target hardened properties, and we can work with them. There's accredited security companies that can work with them also. People should not be given the opportunity to break a window and be able to reach in and steal items. Okay, okay. so I guess he was... Kind of, it sounded like he was kind of blaming you there a little bit, like you should not have had these watches in the window. Is that the way you interpreted that? Well, that's the sense that you get, and it takes away mm. one of our greatest, sense, or our greatest forms of advertisement because primarily you get word of mouth and you get uh, window shoppers. They're one of the biggest things, especially on a downtown strip where people are trying to draw attention to their businesses when you're surrounded by all kinds of others. So that's taking away. But the reality is that we always do have to take steps to protect ourselves because there are right. bad people out there that will do bad things. But we also need enforcement on the other side of things because if people are repeatedly committing the same crimes over and over again and get put out onto the street, what stops them from doing it again? Yeah. I'll bring another, up an another thing. Another thing, he's, another thing he said there was, well, you know, there's private security companies out there. You know, maybe you, go, you should go hire some... I don't know what his, his, his point was there. Maybe you should go hire a security guard. So I need to increase my costs, so I have to increase the prices to the customers. It's mm. going to be the other side of it. But I'll bring up an example of a business that's actually next door to me here. They're um, a catering meals place. They kind of do a meals-to-go type thing. And they had an instance of a homeless person coming in to get a meal. And the homeless person said to them that you need to put the food out on a table for free for the homeless people. And then he turns around to his friend and says, why are we here buying food when we can just go to the grocery store and steal it and nobody will do anything about it? So we see this sense of entitlement encroaching upon everybody. Okay, so you think, last question for you, Jeremy, you think, therefore, what, there should be tougher enforcement by police, there should be tougher penalties? I think there should be actual enforcement, because we hear too many stories of people just getting cut loose. They're not actually doing full enforcement on it. Like, what was it, there was just a recent story on the news here about somebody that had been arrested 150 times, and their sentence on the latest crime was a a year-long suspended sentence. Yeah. How is that going to deter people from committing crime if they just get away with it? Yeah. Jeremy, thank you for coming on today. Thank you.
Let's talk about the corporate CEO who's got everyone talking here with his idea for a cheap dinner at home if you're struggling to make ends meet. Who isn't when you go to the grocery store now and you get sticker shock at the grocery store? So this is Gary Pilnick, okay? He is the CEO of the Kellogg's Cereal Company. And he says, look, if people are having trouble buying food, they're having their little tight on their budget, just eat cereal for dinner. Oh, you could have a bowl of Cocoa Puffs or have a bowl of Fruit Loops. Just have that for dinner. Cereal for dinner. Now, this has created quite a backlash, this interview that he did with CNBC. We're going to play some highlights of it here for you. And I'm looking forward to your calls on this one because there's two sides of it here, okay? We'll get into that. Got Jim Stanford standing by to discuss it first. Let's have a listen to the CEO of the Kellogg Cereal Company here, Gary Pilnick. Have a listen. The cereal category has always been quite affordable, and it tends to be a great destination when consumers are under pressure. So some of the things that we're doing is first messaging. we got to reach the consumer where they are. So we're advertising about cereal for dinner. If you think about the cost of cereal, for a family versus what they might otherwise do, that's going to be much more affordable. Yeah. You got to meet the consumer where they are. And if people are having trouble making ends meet here or paying for their groceries, well, you know, have a, have a bowl of cereal for dinner. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Jim Stanford, economist at the Center for Future Work. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I'm very well, Mike. Thanks for Th- having thanks, me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Okay. Cereal for dinner. I, I think I think I look at cereal as more of um like a breakfast item or maybe a late night snack. I've certainly had a bowl of cornflakes at, at late at night sometimes if I get hungry. But whether it's uh, appropriate for a CEO to say, "Hey, have have cereal for dinner," Jim, what do you think of this? Mike, uh, I think when I was eight years old, I was begging my mom to let me have <laughs> frosted flakes for dinner. So this took me back. Uh, So this is Gary Pilnick, uh, CEO of Kellogg's, and he made over $5 million last year in uh, salary and bonus. And I honestly sometimes just shake my head and say, who hires these CEOs? Like just what a stupid public relations thing to say to people when they're struggling. You know, it doesn't it sound like let them eat cake. It (laughs) it sounds like let them eat cereal. So, you know, this guy is a moron and he's damaged uh, the company's brand and he's still making five million dollars telling the rest of us how we should save well, pennies at the grocery store. Well, is he a moron? Has he damaged the brand, though? Because like I'm thinking the, the reason they pay him five million bucks a year, Jim, is that this guy knows how to make money. He knows how to sell cereal. And isn't that what he's trying to do here? He's trying I, to sell more I cereal. I guess so. I guess so. But I do think he's damaged the brand because, you know, obviously Kellogg's is in the headlines around the world. I'm in Australia right now, Mike, and they're talking about it down here. And uh, so, you know, uh, it's in in the headlines. They're spelling the company's name right, but I don't think the company (laughs) is looking good because of this. So I I, I do think I I see that he is trying to sell his product for sure. There is the old saying that all publicity is good publicity, right? Right. But you don't think so in this case. I don't think so. Uh, okay. And uh, interesting, yeah. There's another uh, another kind of similar story unfolding here in Australia right now. The CEO of the biggest uh, supermarket chain, Woolworths, uh, had to resign last week because he gave a train wreck interview on TV that showed that he was completely out of touch with the, uh, you know, the pressures that people face uh, buying groceries. So I do think there's a cognitive dissonance between people at the top in their boardrooms who think this is all about dollars. 
and you and me and the rest of the people who go to the grocery store every week and try to try to pay for what we need to pay for. Okay, well, let's listen to a little bit more of the CEO of the Kellogg cereal company here, Gary Pilnick, on this campaign to encourage people to save money by eating breakfast cereal for dinner. Now, this is an interesting exchange because you hear the host of this CNBC TV show push back on this guy saying, well, wait a second here. Are you sure you're saying a wise thing here that people should eat cereal for for dinner here to save money? Have a listen to this. I'm all for innovation and marketing, but the idea of having cereal for dinner, um, is there the potential for that to land the wrong way? Uh, We don't think so. In fact, it's landing really well right now, Carl. When we look at all of our data, of course, we would know that breakfast cereal is the number one choice for in-home consumption. We understand that for breakfast. It turns out that over 25% of our consumption is outside the breakfast occasion. A lot of it's at dinner, and that, that occasion continues to grow, as well as the snacking occasion. But um, cereal for dinner is something that is, is probably more on trend now, and we would expect to continue as that consumer is under pressure. Okay, so the consumer is under pressure here, so they expect more people to be eating cereal for dinner. And, Jim, this is why they pay this guy the big bucks. See, he knows everything that goes on about when people eat cereal. They've done Uh all kinds of marketing research on when people consume bowls of cereal. And he says, look, people are doing it. People are eating cereal Mm -hmm. for, for dinner. Go ahead. So I guess he's seeing the silver lining of the hardship that people are experiencing. And obviously, when when people uh, are in financial stress, as they are right now with inflation and high interest rates, uh, they're going to find ways to try and get by. And there may be opportunities for certain slices of the business community in that. You know, like think about a a dollar store, for example, uh, you know, that's going to benefit from people who who, uh, have to save on every single thing that they make. So. Um, you know, I see the dollars and cents logic there, but uh, I do think that uh, uh, he's um, insensitive to what people are going through. And I also think that, that here's another silver lining, Mike. I think it's kind of useful that he said this because it has shone a light on another piece of the food price problem that people are facing. We've all been talking about supermarkets. You and I have talked about supermarkets and Canada's three big chains and how much they've made through this whole inflationary episode. But there's another side to it, which is the food processing uh, industry. Kellogg's, of course, is a medium size. It's not one of the giants, but a medium sized food producer. Uh, their profits went up strongly last year, perhaps thanks to people buying cereal for dinner. Yeah. Uh, the overall food processing industry is uh, uh, making huge profits. Uh, and the big companies, you know, think about companies uh, like uh, PepsiCo that owns like hundreds of different uh, food brands or Cargill, the big meat uh, conglomerate. Uh, their profits are enormous. In in Canada, our research showed uh, their uh, food processing process profits went up 35% last year, just over $8 billion. Supermarket profits and other food retailers went up 11%. That's too much, but the food processors are doing uh, even better. And put those two together, the middleman at the production side and the middleman at the retail side, uh, they've made a big contribution to the uh, food inflation that we're grappling with. Speaking of Jim Stanford, Center for Future Work, about the CEO of Kellogg's, the cereal conglomerate, saying, yeah, people are having trouble paying the bills, eat cereal for dinner. So here's the other thing I was wondering about, Jim. Like you say, this is a disaster of an interview. Uh, this is this is uh, tarnished the brand here. You got to remember, like Kellogg's, this is a publicly traded, publicly owned company. They're listed on the stock exchange. They have a dividend-paying stock. And if I own stock in Kellogg's, 
uh, I know that the CEO is legally obliged to go out there and try and make as much money as he possibly can. And, and it seems to me that's what this guy is doing. Like he's saying, look, we're selling a lot of cereal, it appears, but people are eating cereal for dinner. Let's let's get on this, man. Let's promote this. So what, what would you no, say, you're like, right. for, for someone who's thinking about it from the perspective of a stockholder, like if mm-hmm. I own stock in Kellogg's, should I be uh-huh. mad at this guy, or should I be saying, yeah, this guy's doing his job. He's, he's earning his five million bucks. He's selling more cereal. Well, this is where I think smart investors have to have a perspective that takes into account, yes, the quarter-to-quarter financial performance, and Kellogg's profits were up strongly last year, uh, but also the long-run picture for the viability and position of the business. And uh, an element of a, running a successful business is what's called social license, this idea that a company has to have legitimacy and credibility with the public as a whole, not just making as much money as it can quarter-to-quarter. Quarter. And, uh, you know, in this regard, uh, promoting cereal for breakfast is helping the quarterly profit, but I do think uh, it's um, damaging uh, the credibility of this firm and other film, other firms, other big firms in the in the whole food supply chain, including supermarkets, okay. because they know that we know making big money off of our hardship. Hey, talking about the CEO of the Kellogg cereal company, who said, uh, "Yeah, if you're ever in trouble paying your bills, eat breakfast cereal for dinner." Let's go to your calls, Arlene and Surrey. Hi, Arlene. What do you think? Yes, I have a cereal with blueberries and cranberries for breakfast. Then I'm 77 years old, so my energy is getting less. So for lunch, I have my main meal, chicken, potatoes, vegetables. And then for dinner, I have cereal again with the uh, the cranberries and blueberries plus a glass of orange juice on the side. Okay. So I think for some of my friends are in care homes already. So I think it's nice for elderly who maybe don't have the energy but still um, want to stay at home. Okay, so what do you think about this guy saying that if people want to save money, they should consider eating cereal for dinner? Do you think that's that's okay for him to say then? Well, I guess in the long run, I do save some money that way. I'm not doing it for that. That wasn't my first priority, but yeah. I guess it doesn't help as a senior on modest income to save a little money too. Yeah, so you don't think it was an offensive thing for him to say then? No, I think it's, no. as I say, for all the elderly and, you know, other people, um, it's not offensive. It's something that we do, and uh, it's a way to stay at home longer for the elderly. Okay, thank you, Arlene, for the call. Okay, Jim, she says she's not offended by it. What do you say? Oh, sure, and she was eating it for dinner anyway, so again, mm-hmm. not primarily for the financial reasons. So, um, and he's, it, you know, he is, as you said, Mike, putting his finger on the data. He said, you know, they've looked at the data and he find whatever it was, 20%, I think he said, of total cereal consumption was outside of breakfast. So he, yeah. he obviously knows there's a demand there. But uh, right. uh, again, I, I think you, ha- you do have to trade that off against the, uh, the issue of how the companies portray themselves in this current moment. And the fact okay. that the food processing sector is making so much money. Uh, as we're struggling to pay for groceries, I think is an issue you can't ignore. Yeah. Deb in Victoria. Hi, Deb. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. I just Hi. want to say, I think um, I think cereal has a, a lot of nutrition in it, especially when you put milk with it. And I totally agree with him. I think it's a great idea that he advertised this. You know, eating a, a bowl of cereal with milk on it has far more vitamins and nutrients in it than eating a frozen pizza or a hot dog or a Wendy's, Wendy's uh, hamburger. 
So, you know, it's nutritious and, yeah, and, and it saves money. So what the heck? I think it's a great idea. Okay, Deb, thank you for that. Well, I guess maybe it would depend on the cereal. Like, I imagine a bowl of Fruit Loops or some <laughs> sugar bombs My or something. My Frosted Flakes demand when I was eight, Mike, isn't going to cut the nutrition test. Well, yeah, okay. I wouldn't say that's <laughs> there the are most nutritious. for sure. Yeah, but you could, you know, you could get a less sugary cereal, perhaps. Yes. Maybe I mean, Kellogg sells all kinds of different cereals, and if you've got fruit on it, you know, that's going to bump up the... Uh, Bump up the nutritional value of it. Scott in White Rock. Hi, Scott. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Your sure. previous callers are spot on. Um, I start my day with a cooked breakfast of cereal and mangoes with maple syrup. I have a big healthy lunch at work that I take, and at nighttime I come home. I don't want to wash dishes. I don't want to make a meal. Cereal is the meal of choice I have. I usually mix my cereals. And make sure that, again, I have my maple syrup on it. Okay, would you say that you are having cereal for dinner by choice or by by necessity to save money, though? Sounds like by choice. I'm not you, cooking after eight, working eight hours a day. Yeah, so it's a convenience thing for you. Absolutely. And yeah. nutritious because I read labels and make sure that one of the cereals that I mix is high fiber. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Let's go to Brent in Victoria. Hi, Brent. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, Mike. Um, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I uh, definitely mix my cereal, uh, Kellogg cereals, um, you know, a whole variety. I'm getting all my different nutrition uh, in there. I mean, best way I can. And I actually do it because it's a necessity. Um, you know, I, I, with uh, on a fixed income, I have no choice. Like, I have to cut back and kind of look at where I need to uh, – shop and sometimes i just grab a you know some cereal like what do i want to make for dinner i don't know uh cost of going up and hey it was, finds a way of cutting costs for sure i mean i put some banana and stuff on it too right I mean, yeah I get, you so, know, a little bit of fruit okay so brett 30 seconds yeah. here would you yeah. therefore say that what this kellogg ceo said encouraging people to have breakfast uh, have cereal for dinner that's that's okay with you that did not offend you no, it did totally did not okay. offend me at all. I, I totally echo that. Like, it's nothing wrong with it. I mean, that's probably a PR one, right? Maybe he wants to make more sales. But, I mean, I don't know. I mean, who's not struggling these days and trying to get the most value for your dollar? So if I say, hey, I mean, that's the way to cut my costs. I mean, uh, that has no influence on me on my decision-making on, um, on Kellogg's or any other company um, promoting a product. Brent, thanks for calling in. I knew we'd get yeah. awesome calls on this topic. Jim, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Tim. It's breakfast time here in Australia. I'm going to go have a bowl of cereal now. Have a bowl of cereal. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.